morning. Now, you know, if you're the uh, fans of the world champion Denver Broncos, shouldn't you have a little more energy than that? I know that seems like it was six months ago, but it was actually just last week that that happened. All right, how many of you, be honest, how many of you thought the Broncos would score the first points and lead the entire game? Yeah, only this guy out here thought that, but no, I guess a couple other people. I did not see that one coming, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, enjoy it while you can. It's highly unlikely that it'll happen for a while, that's for sure, but that was something. Could you believe that march and the, not the march, but the parade and all of that? And did you go? So were you one of the people that was there 10 hours early to get a front row seat? You were in the first 100,000. Okay, well, that's good, Mary Jo. <laughs> that's awesome. Amazing. It, that was quite a deal. So, you know, it's football, and it's fun, and now we're on to the next, and now it's all equal as starting from now. And uh, it's an interesting thing how that works in our society, but it's fun to be a part of something and, and uh, celebrate it. And we come in here, and I hope we won't have the same kind of set of emotions and all of the things that happen in a contest like that, but we do have the opportunity to celebrate, and we should have a range of emotions today. I think you'll find this is an experience, I hope, that you start into this series. The series is called Tears of Sorrow, and it's a setup time for Easter. Um, we, Jim and I have realized in talking through with people in the church, this is a good idea to follow the Lent cycle so that we have the contrast between the struggle and then the victory in Christ that happens on Easter, and so that we're all ready to have him uh, off the cross and out of the grave by the time that that happens, rather than kind of it just being another humdrum. So this series we start, uh, we have a real contrast. Today, why don't we all stand together, because here's what we're going to do. I'll give you a second to stand up. We're going to read through 1 Corinthians 13 together. It's a little longer reading than we usually do. But we're doing that for two reasons. It is Valentine's Day, so the love theme makes sense. But also we find out that love is one of the critical elements in working against and with sorrow. One of the critical pieces, we'll find that out in this sermon today from the, who, the woman who comes and washes Jesus' feet. But this is about, as, Jesus, as uh, Paul talked about it, this is about love as one of these major character traits. It's one of the great virtues. And I think we'll learn a little bit about these uh, uh, characteristics as we read through. So let's just relax and read through this out loud together. Here we go. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I behaved like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. So now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, thanks for this information from Paul. It was in a part where he was trying to correct some things and the church was trying to learn what it meant to have the Holy Spirit in their midst and uh, manage all of that and understand all of that and come to terms with all of that and embrace it and love it and celebrate it. And right in the middle, Paul dropped this in, in the middle of that discussion of how the gifts and how the Holy Spirit works in the church. He dropped in this long, beautiful poem that is uh, his concept, his understanding of uh, what love means. And so it's not just some uh, wishy feeling. It surely has emotions in it without any question. But it's a core element, uh, the defining piece, the, the queen of all of the virtues. And so thanks that we can have that in our contrast. And here as we sing these songs today, Lord, uh, we'll be speaking things that show some of the contrast between the struggle that we feel with sin and the sorrow we feel over that, and uh, that up against the joy and the celebration of trading in our sorrows. So receive our praise and our worship today, and uh, we pray all of that in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing that song a little more. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame.
us to celebrate like that. And part of what we're doing, of course, is this contrast. And uh, hopefully this helps us consider the cross.
seems to capture the essence, Lord, of what the woman felt as she came. And it was uh, a deep appreciation. It was based out of her love because she had been forgiven so much. We'll talk about that. And we'll hear from you, I hope, and uh, engage with that. And we'll all find ourselves in different places in the story. But, Lord, we uh, come, we give ourselves, and we stand in awe of you. No matter who we are, we should be able to resonate with that idea that you are awesome and that you are holy and you are worthy of our attention and praise. Thank you for this time together. We love you. 
We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today it's a little different. We're not going to have the kiddos on the stage because we're going to have a baby dedication time a little bit later. But right now, why don't you say hello to each other, greet each other, welcome each other. And fan anybody who's come for baby dedication, come on up here right now. Come on up. There's, a, there's way too much joy here this morning. Yeah. You know, um, every now and then in the life of a church, we have the incredible privilege and joy of dedicating a child. And that's what we're going to do. I'd like to invite the Hindorfs, their family, and anybody that would like to stand with them just to support them to come on up. Yes. <laughs> Family's pretty good looking. The kids are great looking. <laughs> good morning. How are you? You're not used to being up here, are you? You want to stay up here and preach with me? <laughs> the lights are bright. <laughs> Introduce your family to us. I will. I'm J.D. Hindorf, and I'm going to start with my daughter because she's the reason we're, out, we're up here today. This is Kylie Hindorf. This is my son, Dustin. And I think for everybody who is sitting near us today, they're very thankful for our nursery time up here because she's <laughs> usually in the nursery, not running around. Uh, this is my brother-in-law, um, Dave. Yes, thank you. <laughs> this is my sister-in-law, Jamie, our niece, Anna, uh, my mother-in-law, and my father-in-law, Doug and Lois. And, oh yeah, we all know Jenny and we all know Julie. <laughs> <laughs> it is Valentine's Day. Get a little nervous with the mic. Now you know how we feel when we're up here. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, throughout the biblical tradition, children are important. In fact, uh, they're so important, Jesus holds them up as a standard for what faith should look like. That's really amazing. It's really amazing when you consider the fact that in the first century, children were the lowest on the social structure. They were even below the slaves because they hadn't yet proven their character. So when Jesus took a child into his arms, that's a, that's a very countercultural thing to do. It's a, almost offensive, but it, it's part of our tradition. So it's a real honor to dedicate Kylie to the Lord. That's a real special thing to do. And uh, you guys have expressed, we've had, uh, I've enjoyed our meals together, expressed a desire to dedicate her to the Lord. So uh, the first question I have for you, really the only question is, 
It's, uh, is it your intention to raise her in the Christian tradition, which is our tradition, isn't it? The Christian tradition. Is it? Yes. Yes. Excellent. And what about you? What do you think? You don't have a clue, do you? You're just hanging on the mom. Very good. On behalf of our, our church here, especially our membership, I will represent them and say that um, our commitment is to walk with you on that road. We will do it with you. As long as God blesses us with leading you here, we will be part of that. Because, you know, uh, you see all these, this wisdom out there? There's a lot of people out there that know a lot about child raising. We would love to partner with you. So I'm not going to ask you to say you'll commit to it because I already know you will. I don't have to. So what I'm going to ask you to do is stand with me because we're going to pray. But before we pray, you can show your commitment and joy by just applauding them and their decision. Let me pray for Kylie. Father, I pray for Kylie. Lord, I, uh, um, I pray that even from this early stage, these early days, your spirit would be involved with her. Lord, we have examples of that all throughout Scripture. And I pray that you would be very engaged with her in her heart and that as she grows and she learns about you, that you would draw her to you. I pray, Lord, for Dustin, that he would be a great big brother as he grows up and as he helps her along the way. And I pray for J.D. and Jenny and their family, Lord, uh, as they face, who knows what they're going to face ahead, but what I do know is by your grace, it'll be fine. And by your strength and wisdom, you can help them. I do know that. So I pray for that wisdom that you would give them along the journey. Thank you, Lord. So with that in mind, we dedicate Kylie Kendall to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's applaud him one more time. Okay. Perfect. Kids, you know where to go? It's that way, I think. Yeah. yeah, Mark just told him, if any of you want to go that way, it's better than what's going to happen in here. They have more fun. Happy Valentine's Day. I made it around to a bunch of you, but I did want to say Happy Valentine's Day. It is a, a day when we stop and pause on people that are important to us. And so um, I told most of the guys I'd tell you Happy Valentine's Day, but then I have to give you a kiss and probably should avoid that. So uh, glad you're here. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. We begin the journey today toward Easter. We've decided this year, uh, every year we do something a little different, so we decided this year to focus on tears. We're going to look at several key people in the uh, scriptures that uh, shed tears, including Christ himself. We're going to look at that. Today in particular, we're going to look at a story about brokenness, humility, and love. It's a story that is familiar to some of you, maybe not to all of you. It's not the most well-known, but it is a story about uh, a sinful woman, or as Jesus describes her, a very sinful woman. I love that. 
Many sins, many sins, he describes. The first, this week, uh, many of you know, I went to visit my 99-year-old grandmother. Uh, my brother called me and said, I think it's time to come and love on her one more time, and, um, which I have for my whole life. Uh, up, until, up until recently, I called her every week, and we talk and pray together, and I just love her. And he said, it's time to come say goodbye. So we went to see her, and uh, so my brother said, Grandma, you need to open your eyes. You need to open your eyes. We have a surprise for you. So she opens her eyes, and she goes, oh, you came. <laughs> and uh, we just had a great time crying together, praying together, and I uh, told her that I uh, may not see her again on this earth, and she knows that. Time is short for her. But on the trip out there and back, something happened that, uh, two things happened, actually, that really got my attention. Uh, both of them brought tears to me. Um, in, uh, it's in western Kentucky, and there's two high schools in the county, and they have, a, of course, a big rivalry, basketball rivalry. So uh, they had a big basketball game that night, and we had to go because everybody goes. So we went. And, um, and it was actually a very fun basketball game, but at, at halftime, they brought out the uh, cheerleaders for the Special Olympics young men and women who are severely, severely physically and mentally challenged. Severely challenged. And they had their, their own attire, and, um, and so they stood in between all the regular high school cheerleaders, and they helped them with their cheers. And I just looked at their smiles on their faces as they got to do that. The whole arena stood. Tears were everywhere. Um, it was that touching as you had a, just, a, just a glimpse of what it means to show dignity to someone who from the world standards is less fortunate than us. I'm not sure they would say it that way, but from the world standards, they're less fortunate than us. And it, it brought tears as they did that. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the boys got to sing the national anthem, and it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I looked around and just people were crying. I don't, I, I travel, as you know, I travel around the world and I teach and I don't know of any country that does what we just did. I, I, I've not seen that before, that kind of honor. Everywhere I go, if you're that, um, if you have any kind of challenge, you're not even in school. And so uh, the Christian schools are so unique in third world countries where they bring people in because we show dignity to people, don't we? We show them love. That's going to be part of the story, actually. Today, you're going to see that. Then, as I was flying out of town, I, uh, I hopped a little plane, and it was a really little Cessna plane from Western Kentucky to Cape, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And um, <clears throat> the airport's so small, it only has one door out one door in. There's no gates. It's just, it's all there is. I got off the plane, and the guy... Uh, carries my suitcase. I walk in, he carries it up, opens the door, and lays it down. I said, what took you so long? <laughs> so I'm sitting there on the way out, <clears throat> waiting for the plane to come in, and uh, this little nine, the biggest plane there at the airport is only nine passengers. And uh, there's these two old men sitting over in the corner talking. One has a World War II uh, vet hat on, and they're talking, and they said they both grew up there, and they didn't even know each other. How'd that happen? They both grew up and didn't even know each other in this little tiny town. So they were kind of catching up on their history. Oh, yeah, I was there when you were here. You were here when I was there. And, and um, the one man, uh, they were both vets, World War II vets, and one's face was disfigured. That happened in the war. And he shared the story. Um, one of his eyes didn't work. 
and uh, he could only see out of one. Uh, now, he's much older now, World War II vet. So he asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm waiting for my older brother, <laughs> who's also a World War II vet. So when the plane came in, his older brother's face was disfigured, and he's completely blind, and that happened in the war as well. So the man stood up, which was an exercise for him to stand up, but he got up, and, and he had a cane, and he just walked like this through the door to go meet his brother. And they helped his brother in because he's blind, these two old men, and they hadn't seen each other for a number of years, and they both just wept. They just put their arms around each other and just sobbed like babies, and they didn't care. Tears. Tears are very interesting what they reveal about us. And I saw that, and I just sat there and watched that, and I myself had tears, to be honest with you, at just seeing the, the joy do they care about their disfigurement? No. Do they care about the, the, the damage that had been done to their bodies in the war? No. You know, they, they were just so grateful to see each other. As we journey toward Easter through this season, we're going to be reflecting on several people who shed tears, including Christ. And one of the questions we're going to ask is, why did they cry? Why did they cry each step of the way? You know, all too often when we come to the scriptures, what's the first question we ask? What does this mean for us? Right? Isn't that what we typically ask? When I was in seminary, it's been a number of years ago now, I had a chance to do an independent study with the chairman of the pastoral ministries department who was just finishing his last year. He'd been there 40 years, and he was retiring. And I said, you've been here 40 years. Tell me about the students. Uh, how, how have the students changed in 40 years? And he said, uh, he chuckled, and he goes, well, he said, 40 years ago, the students would come into my office, and they'd say, Prof, can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I grade papers? Can I file anything you need filing? Can I help you write up notes? What do you need help with? Today, they come in, and they say, Prof, what do I need to do to be successful? And that captures my lifetime of watching our country. To me, that captures it. And when we come to the text, we almost always ask the question, what does this mean for us? What if we started with a different question? What does this tell us about this one true God? That's why I spend so much time educating you rather than telling you how to live it out. You'll figure how to live it out. You'll figure it out. I want you to understand this one true God. When we ask the question, what does this mean for us? When we do that, we make ourselves the lead character in the story rather than God. This is God's story. You just have the privilege of playing a role in it. You have a, a cameo part in this story. As we focus on those who shed tears, we're going to pause and marvel at God's grace. We're going to marvel at his mercy. Yes, we're going to marvel at his love as well because it's present in each story. Throughout the season of Lent, can we work to keep this, this God up front that we serve, that we say we believe in? Keep his grace in front of us to help make sense. Because you see, you can't really understand Easter unless you understand the sorrow that led to it, the tragedy, the mocking, the shame. You can't. Otherwise, it just becomes another sensational story in a, in a series of stories. To really capture what happened uh, you need to understand sorrow and brokenness. 
So by the time we get to Easter, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, you're going to be so ready to start dancing. And we will. We will celebrate. Our goal during this series is to connect as a congregation, to connect more deeply and authentically with our broken world and our own challenges right here, our own sorrows. I already know that several of you, many of you possibly hide shame. I know that. I know that. You don't have to. This is a safe place. You don't have to. But I know that that's our tendency. We're going to talk about that. So let's turn to the story. It's in Luke chapter 7. It's the story of a sinful woman and a righteous Pharisee named Simon. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Okay, let's set the stage for the story a little bit with your own life. Let's put it in your context. Have you ever felt alone, isolated from God? You ever felt that? I bet if I had you raise your hands, almost all of you would at least one time. Perhaps you are hiding sin. Perhaps you're hiding shameful things that have been done to you. I did that for a long time. I hid shameful things that people did to me that they shouldn't have done. Um, Perhaps you're hiding apathy. Maybe you find yourself not particularly caring. Uh, And you struggle with the fact that you don't care. And that produces guilt. You ever wrestle with any of that? Our story is about a woman who is sinful. Um, You have the fortune, the good fortune, the good blessing of being able to hide your shame. She could not. Everyone knew about it. And not only that, it's recorded for all of eternity to see. How would you like your life put right out on the pages of Scripture? Boy, I'm not sure David liked that. With Bathsheba, the story goes on and on. So the setting is a banquet. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So he's at a banquet provided by a Pharisee. We learn his name in a minute. His name is Simon. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So we're at this banquet provided by a Pharisee, and the banquet is interrupted by a sinful woman who begins to cry and wash his feet with her tears. What's that all about? What's that all about? Most people, when they're sinful, they go hide. That's what I do by tendency, is to go hide. We're not told the nature of her sinful life. We're not told why she is weeping, but we have some clues that are going to help reveal it, I think. Now, in an earlier story, we'll come back to this in just a second. In an earlier story, back in chapter 5, Luke gives another story of a sinner and a Pharisee at a banquet, but this time it's reversed. The sinner is hosting it, and the Pharisees intrude. They break into the party. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. Listen to these words. Then Levi, he was a tax collector, one of the most despised people in the country, similar to how we feel about IRS agents, I suspect. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now, tax collectors were despised because they were crooked people. They were allowed to charge 
go collect tax and charge more. That's how they made their money. That's how they got wealthy. So you may owe X amount of dollars, and they're going to double it or triple it. Say, you owe this much, and they're allowed to do that legally. So they were the despised people of the, of the group. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember, he's at this great banquet with all these tax collectors. So they break into the party and said, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you hanging out with these sinners? So Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, so in this earlier story, Jesus remarks that he has come to invite sinners, namely those who are sick, he's referring to, to repentance. You know what he's inviting them to? He's inviting them into a relationship of trust, of safety. If you've ever confessed sin in front of somebody, you know you have to have a high level of trust to do that. You just don't walk up to a stranger and start blurting out your sins. In fact, we have a hard enough time sharing it with the people we're closest to. Often we will do it with somebody that is we trust like a pastor or a priest, don't we? But there's a level of trust involved in that. So what he's doing is he's inviting these people, these tax collectors, into a relationship of trust. This was an indictment against the Pharisees as they considered themselves righteous, not sinners. How come you're hanging out with these sinners? So they considered themselves the righteous one. So this gives insight into how Jesus viewed those typically treated as marginalized and outcast by culture. In this case, these tax collectors, we have just a glimpse. He's, he's moving toward them. He's going after them. He's eating with them. He's not afraid to be unclean, become unclean on their behalf. He's not afraid to spend time with them. And he'll endure the mocking and the shame and whatever else happens. Now, in our story in Luke 7, the story is reversed. The Pharisees hosting the banquet and a sinful woman intrudes onto the scene. Now, this is not actually that unusual. Uninvited guests were permitted at banquets as long as they remained along the walls. So oh, the invited guests were in the center and the uh, people could come in and check it out. That was very customary. That was allowed. It was a way of showing people how important they were so they could come watch. So they had to remain along the walls. The problem is she didn't do that. So we have scandal right off the bat. Okay, to help you visualize the scene, in the, in, in the Jewish world when they had meals at this time, they would lay on their left side and they would rest on their left elbow and eat with their right hand. And their heads would all be, so picture a circle, if you will, of people all facing together. So there's a group and they're right there eating and you can talk to one another, and everybody else is standing along the outside. You see the picture? Okay. So she had no place to anoint him except in his feet. That's the only thing she could get to because his feet are sticking out a little closer to the wall. So you get the picture? Kind of what it's like? Okay. So he's reclining at the table. Um, Jesus is spending time with this Pharisee, and we know from verse 49, when it says the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins, that this was a banquet. There's a whole group of them there, and Jesus is one of the invited ones. This is a kosher banquet, and in the smack in the middle of this appears an unwanted guest. Now, it was a great honor to be invited to uh, a banquet by a Pharisee, to be hosted. They're part of the Jewish leadership. 
So to get invited to that was a great honor. And it was also very risky. They didn't just invite anybody. The table was the most intimate social setting in the first century world. That's where they, they talked theology, talked business. That's where they, they did things right there. So it was a very intimate setting. But it carried risks. What happens if a sinner, i.e. a ritually unclean person, comes into the midst uh, and interjects themselves into the scene? What happens into that experience? That person would jeopardize both the Jewish ritual purity and the social stratification because everybody on the table was clean, ritually clean. They had gone through their cleansing process. They washed their hands. They were prepared for meals. Everybody on the outside... Not so. So if they injected themselves into the conversation or the event, they would render a kosher experience unclean. But at the very least, they would mess up the social stratification. That's exactly what happened. The Pharisee and the sinful woman are at opposite ends of the social spectrum, and everybody knew it. No secrets in a small town. So she's described as washing his feet with her hair. Okay? Um, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and put perfume on him. Now, her hair obviously was let down, or she wouldn't have washed it. At this time in the world, the only women who were required to have their hair up were married women. Single women could allow them. Single women, harlots, prostitutes, and others could allow it to be down. It wasn't necessarily a statement on her condition. We know she was a sinful woman because of her reputation. That's why. So in Jewish literature of this time, a woman whose hair is let down... When she, her hair is let down and she's accompanying it with tears, that's a sign of mourning. It's a, time, it's a sign of humility, of grief, of contrition for something and for gratitude. That's what it's revealing. So these details are very important in the story because this woman is a sinful woman, but she's, she's demonstrating, in accordance with the custom, some level of humility. While we do not know what she was guilty of, uh, Jesus verifies her status with this statement in Luke 7, 47. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. He's validating this. So she's washing her feet with his hair, or washing his feet with her hair, and uh, Simon didn't provide a towel, so she's using her hair to do that, and Jesus verifies her status. She is thoroughly undesirable in this culture. That's the message I want you to know. She's an outcast. By the standards of society, she is an outcast. Okay, you with me? You recognize, you see the scene that's, start, that's developing here? This is a scene filled with uh, emotion, tension, politics. And yet, she is extravagant and generous with her actions. Listen to the verbs that are used of her. She learned where Jesus was. She learned that. She brought a jar of ointment in alabaster. That tells us that she had sacrificed a great deal because alabaster was used for very expensive ointments and things like that. She stood behind his feet. She wept. She began to wash his feet. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them, and she anointed them with perfume. In contrast, Simon is festering. Listen to what it says about him, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him, uh, we don't know his name yet. I'm telling you, it's Simon. We're going to see it in a minute. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he were really a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That is, she's a sinner. That's what he's thinking. The text is very clear. That's inside of his mind. 
I just love it. He's festering. It's just amazing. He's embarrassed. He's embarrassed at his own banquet because Jesus allowed that to happen and didn't stop it. So at his own banquet, he's embarrassed. So Jesus responds with a surprising parable. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, tell me, teacher. So he's bestowing on him a title. He's one of the invited guests. So he's showing him honor. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him uh, 500 denarii and the other 50. That's about two months' salary and about two years' salary. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, Simon gives a thoughtful response to his credit. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Now, remember the question, which one will love him more? Isn't that a great question? Which one will love him more? And he said, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. So those who have been forgiven much have a greater love for Jesus. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been in her shoes. May not be public. We may not all know about it. But somebody in your life does. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someplace you were before you came here and you're hiding shame. You know what that's like to begin to experience that level of forgiveness. The problem is, is that we all experience that level of forgiveness. We don't realize it. Most of us get so caught up in the hustle and bustle of surviving and success and acquiring things and building our, our little empires that we don't really capture the idea of how, how much we have been forgiven. God owes us nothing. Nothing. There's nothing that commends you to God. It is purely from his love that he moves into your life. But we, we have a hard time seeing that. So Jesus responds to both the woman and the Pharisee in an unexpected way. Verse 44. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she has wet my hair with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. <clears throat> Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and listen to this language, as her great love has shown. Isn't that great? Her many sins have been forgiven, as has been demonstrated by her great love. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now the other guests, you think they jump up and down with joy. Not at all. Who is this that even forgives sins? They start talking among themselves because only God forgives sins. Only God. The Bible is very clear on that. He just claimed divine privilege. That's what he did. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he turns to the woman but continues to speak to Simon. Now she has been declared to be a sinner three times in this story. Luke is really wanting you to get the picture this is an outcast. This is a despicable woman in their culture. This is a woman with very few friends who struggles with mocking and shame. And yet Jesus does not even whisper a word of judgment. Not even a word. And that is his pattern all the way throughout with outcast people. All the way throughout the Gospels. What do you say to the woman caught in adultery? Where's all your accusers? 
they're all gone. He said, neither do I accuse you. Are those great words of grace? In contrast, he delivers to Simon a scathing, a blistering rebuke with three indictments. He didn't wash his feet, he didn't kiss him, and he didn't anoint the head. Now here's what's amazing about that. None of this was required by either the law or by social convention. Pharisee was, the Pharisee was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. The bare minimum. You get it? In any other setting, no one would criticize him. He didn't do anything wrong. Until you compare him with the woman of shame. Nothing required him to do any of that. He was doing the bare minimum. Keeping the law. Simon had not violated an iota of the Torah, the law. So Jesus begins to reveal the truth about both of these people, which is very pertinent for us, the, son, the sinful woman and the Pharisee. The sinful woman ends up being the true host, and from Jesus' perspective, in her extravagant and humble response, she reveals herself. What did Paul say? Put one another as more important than yourself. Make one another as more important than yourself. What did Jesus say? If somebody takes your cloak, give them two. Go the extra mile. Become extravagant. Become generous toward others. Don't take the minimum position. Simon is never shown to embrace or accept Jesus for who he is. He's concerned about keeping the law. The bare minimum. Where are you? Where do you find yourself in this story? You do the bare minimum. I show up on Sunday. I put my check in the offering. I dutifully sing my songs of praise when the choir's up here, the band. I try to stay awake during the sermon. Is that where you are? Or do you find yourself throughout the week saying, how can I love people more? What more can I do that's extravagant, generous, do you think I, I acquired my wealth, everything I have because of my good? Oh, God's blessed me, and I thank him for his blessing, but it's really mine. Or do you think in terms of God blessed me so that I can bless the people around me? Where do you find yourself in this story? Jesus' unwarranted free display of grace toward this woman is a picture of what he steadily did, and this is what provoked the Pharisees, and anger them steadily. In this setting, Jesus accepts this sinful woman and in the process scandalizes Simon and his guests. He scandalizes them. He's not afraid to be mocked or shamed on our behalf. What becomes scandalous to, what is scandalous to them becomes grace to the woman. That's always going to be true. You reach out and help a drug addict, it's going to be scandalous. The people around you say, boy, I'm good for you. I'm glad you're doing that. I'm not going to do it. Where do you find yourself in the story? So her tears come from a humble and contrite heart, which is demonstrated by her deep, deep love. So which, where are you? Are you in the place of this woman? Do you have tears that result from deep sorrow? Shame from a past secret? 
outcasts within your own social group? What if everybody knew the truth about you? What if they knew the truth? If they only knew about me, I would be embarrassed and ashamed. Is that where you're coming from? Or do you not even pay attention? I'm pretty good. Which side of that divide are you on? For those of you that recognize the shame and the hurt and the sorrow, uh, you don't need to be ashamed. There's no need. We have a Savior. His name is Jesus. This is a safe place. I've been ashamed. I know what it's like. For those of you who look down on sinners and outcasts, a couple thoughts. In this story, Simon's fate is left unresolved. We don't know what happened to him. We simply don't know. This is consistent with Luke all the way through the gospel. You have the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't know what their final answer is. There's a big question mark at the end of the story about them. You have the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. There's a question mark. Did he turn to God or did he turn away? You have the self-satisfied Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Did he turn back to God and repent? Or is there a big question mark? It leaves a question mark. What's, I think what Luke is doing is saying every single person has a choice. The last chapter is not written. So what about you? Those of you that struggle to put others as more important than yourselves. The last chapter is not written. Are you willing to change your ways and become that way? Will you turn to Christ? Will you ter- treat others as more important than yourself? That's what Jesus did. In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. That's what communion is all about. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for enduring the mocking, the shame, the scorn, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the persecution, the suffering, the tears, the pain, all of that. Thank you for doing that for us. Thanks for not being embarrassed over us. Quite the contrary. Thanks for being proud of us and for loving us. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Can we ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering? Thank you for your generosity.
little bit uh, later on in the series, we're going to study this passage out of Hebrews, but listen to these words. This will set the stage for communion time together. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He pleaded with God. He pleaded with God to save him from death. A little bit later in the same book, we learn this about Jesus. He endured the cross, but you know how it begins. Who, for the joy set before him, what's coming. He endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what communion's all about. That's what it's all about. His willingness to become a laughing stock shameful for us. I'd like to invite some of you to come up and prepare us for communion and get ready to pray with us. So if you'd like to serve the bread and the cup, come on forward. Stories. On the night that he was betrayed, okay, pause. On the night he was what? Betrayed. Betrayed. The whole sequence is filled with horror, shame, tragedy, mocking. On the night he was betrayed, he broke the bread, took it, broke it, gave thanks, said, this is my body given for you. You know, in between that event and the next morning when he died, there's a lot of pain, a lot of beating, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shaming, mocking. All night long, they laughed at him, hitting, beating, struck him. All night long. That's what he was willing to undergo for us. That's is our confession. This is what we believe. So the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know what that means? Remember me. I remembered you. I came back for you. Don't forget me. After supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Shed his blood, gave his life. Do this in remembrance of me. I remembered you. I didn't forget you. Remember me. So communion is an exercise in remembering the shame and the mocking that Christ went through on our behalf. When you come forward to receive communion, if, if you're a guest, we don't have a set time that we take it. You're welcome to take it here. You can go back to your seat and meditate. Sometimes people like to kneel here and kneel at the cross and pray. It's up to you. When you come up, stop and pray with us. One of us, we love to pray. If you have a need that we need to lift up, we'll lift it up to the Lord with you. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Jesus, thank you for undergoing such a vile, horrible, tragic, painful experience for us. Thank you. In your name we pray with honor. Amen. Come and enjoy communion.
right, as you go out this week, if you're struggling with shame, just set it aside. You know what you get when you turn to the Lord, Hebrews tells us? You find mercy, you find grace, you find help, and uh, that's what you'll find when you turn to us as well. It's okay. God never uses shame. It's not his way. Shame makes you run away from the Lord. Just set it aside and turn to the Lord. If your marriage is in trouble, my marriage has been in trouble. If your family's in trouble, my family's been in trouble. I've been in trouble. I have all those things. It's okay. Have a great week. Go in peace. I'm my song.